Welcome to Art Openings, the podcast where there are no gatekeepers, no stupid questions, and art for all. Hosted by Samantha Sanders and Courtney Jordan and sponsored by Artist Network. Money makes the world go round, or at least money doesn't hurt, especially if you're an artist. In this Art Openings Money Month, we're going to be talking money every which way for four weeks straight. From who's making money in the art world, to how, to, how you price your own art, some creative ways to make money as an artist that you might not have thought of, and on our final show, we will be taking all of your questions. So there are two ways to support yourself as an artist. One, you can cut down on expenses and hope that you can go no frills until you break through. Or two, you can make more money. So to most people, the first doesn't sound like very much fun at all, and the second can feel damn near impossible. But today's guest has managed to do both. And despite a personal vow she made early in her career to never try and make money living entirely from her art, she's actually managed to do just that. And she has a few interesting ideas to share. Literally, she'll be telling you how she does this. So stay with us after a quick break and we will hear all of her ideas. Artist Network is proud to present SketchCon in partnership with Sketchbook School. For three fun-packed days, we'll experience a non-stop smorgasbord of rich visual presentations, inspirational talks, collaborative art projects, demonstrations of techniques and materials, sketch crawls, and one-on-one advice. For the first time ever, over 500 creative makers and artists, including top sketchbook artists from around the world, will gather in sunny Pasadena this November 2nd through 4th to celebrate our art. If you love to draw and paint in your sketchbook, join us. Tickets are limited, so definitely register register now at sketchcon.com. That's sketchcon with a K, S-K-E-T-C-H-K-O-N.com. Welcome back to Art Openings. And as I said before the break, we're going to be listening to artist Miranda Aisling, who's going to be telling us a little bit about how she's making her living as a working artist. And we're going to play her interview in just a moment. But we do want to direct you to the show notes where we're going to include some information about the projects that Miranda discusses. And also, if you want to learn more about her personal tiny house revolution, her house story is going to be featured in the November issue of Artist Magazine. And now artist Miranda Aisling. Hello, this is Miranda. Hey, it's Samantha with Artist Magazine. Is it still a good time to talk? Yeah, it is. Awesome. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. Are you in Massachusetts? I am. Okay. Um, Yeah, so I wanted to kind of talk to you about two things, like I mentioned. The first being um, your studio space, um, and the second being the questions for the podcast about um, rent to own and the art and, and how you're dealing with money as an artist. So would it be okay to kind of chat about, um, your studio first? Yeah, sure. Okay. Awesome. Um, so just for context for the magazine readers, how would you describe your work as an artist? I'm a abstract oil painter. Mm -hmm. Um, so I use bright colors and I actually knit my own canvases. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. So it was a, it's an attempt to combine the female-dominated realm of um, craft knitting with the male-dominated realm of fine art oil painting um, to create unique pieces. And so I know that you said you primarily are painting currently in your friend's attic space, but you mm-hmm. decided at some point to, to actually build a tiny house, right? Yes. Yeah. So I built my tiny house as a public art project. Oh, wow. Um, and it is my primary residence, so everything in the house, really? including the house itself, is handmade by local artists. So why did you decide to, to build it? 
Um, so actually, like very unromantically, it was <laughs> economics. <laughs> yep. Um, I was working as a uh, director of operations at a nonprofit art center. I had just finished my master's degree and was looking at student debt. And I was looking at my savings and the amount of my income that I was spending on rent. Mm-hmm. And I realized that within the tiny house world, if you build a house yourself, you can um, spend about $30,000 and have a place to live full time. Mm-hmm. And I had spent about $16,000 in just two years of graduate school and living. Yeah. And that was really actually in a very affordable place, all things considered, mm-hmm. in Boston. Um, so the, the initial thing was just trying to figure out how to live in an affordable, financially responsible way, um, that would also enable me to pursue, um, the art in the way that I wanted to and a lifestyle in the way that I wanted to. So as a public art piece, was there a time when this was completely open? Anyone could go in and and look or has there always been more by appointment? No, so it was built on the front lawn of an art center in oh, wow. Concord, Massachusetts, so it was very public. <laughs> um, it was out there for an entire year during its construction. From a, uh, Tiny houses are often built on a trailer, so from mm-hmm. an empty trailer and a pile of wood to a completed house, it was on display. And then um, I've hosted the big Tiny House Festival in Massachusetts for three years now and the second year was the culmination of this project so we had about 3,000 people come out um, in July 2016 to tour the house at the end of the project and I opened it up at the festival every year so did you build it yourself or was there a crew of people working on it throughout the year I was kind of the project manager um, but we did have a huge amount of volunteers Um, over 50 people helped on the house um, with everything from no experience, like myself, actually, Mm -hmm. um, to professional carpenters. Um, The main volunteer uh, was actually my mother, who lives in Stanford, Connecticut, and Mm -hmm. did her time in in the sea as well. But she is a technical theater director, so she had most construction experience, but was very clear when I first asked her to do this project with me that only everything she'd ever built only had to look good from the fifth row. And one side, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I was very confident in her abilities and I'm incredibly grateful. She, uh, the first three months of the project, we built the entire shell of the house over the summer in 2015. And she drove up from Stanford, Connecticut to Boston in about Mm -hmm. three and a half hours. So she left Saturday morning, built for eight hours with me, stayed overnight, built for eight hours with me, and drove back Uh, every weekend for three months. That's some mom love. That's some seriously mother, serious motherly devotion. (laughs) (laughs) And this isn't for publication, but just my own curiosity. How did you find a place to put it? Because I know that's often a struggle when people build tiny. Do you have like a piece of land you already had or... Yeah, so it is It is a struggle, and people across the nation are working right now. Um, my tiny house is in a friend's backyard. Mm-hmm. It's about 40, 35 to 40 minutes drive outside of the city. Um, mm-hmm. So one of the choices that I made is I became more or less a commuter when I lived in my tiny house. Um, and is that because the I, zoning laws just prohibit it? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, tiny houses do best in areas where they don't draw a lot of attention at this mm-hmm. point. Um, and people are working with cities, but I, I truly don't see tiny houses as an answer for an urban area. Mm-hmm. I mean, in urban areas, do micro-apartments, um, right. do well-planned multi-use buildings. Um, tiny houses, I think, are really great answers for suburban areas, for people mm-hmm. who still want to connect with urban centers, um, and thus having a secondary home in a backyard of somebody mm-hmm. who has a bigger home. Um and then they also do really well um, a little bit further out than that, maybe not all the way to rural areas, because mm-hmm. at that point you have so much land that you don't need to live tiny. <laughs> right. Um, but I and think you have to deal really with like water good. hookups and things like that, I would imagine. Exactly. Yeah. So, so most of the people I know who live in tiny houses live in a friend or family member's backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are very, very specific and very different zoning regulations. The issue is that it changes in every single town. Mm-hmm. It's such a local form of law. Yeah. Uh, some people live completely legally. Some people travel full time and through that live completely legally. Um, and some people do live in gray areas. Uh, you broke up a little bit there. Oh, sorry. sorry. I was going to say, do you consider yourself an, an advocate for tiny houses? It seems like you're pretty politically involved in it, too, in a sense. Yeah, I'm working on it. Um, I don't know. I, there are some people who I really respect who kind of do it all the time, and I very much call them the advocates. Um, for me, I'm an advocate for intentional living, mm-hmm. for people learning how to live in creative and healthy ways. And I think tiny houses are a really powerful way to start that conversation with people. Um, most people in the tiny house movement, you know, the goal isn't for tiny houses for everyone. Right. The goal is to have more in-depth conversations about how we live and why we live that way and whether it's the right way for us to be living. Mm-hmm. So I absolutely think of myself as an advocate in terms of those conversations. Yeah. And when you talk about intentionality, when it comes to like your own creative work, how do you feel like being in a tiny space affects your work? Is there an interplay there or is it really unrelated? I think it's very much related. Um, I mean, I told you that my primary art form is abstract oil painting, mm-hmm. um, but I very much consider myself a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. <laughs> and um, I kind of, I view creativity as the guide through which I live my entire life. I view myself as my own best piece of art. Mm-hmm. Because I consider art, uh, I had to come up, you know, I did the graduate school thing and I had to come up with my definition of art. And for me, art is an object or idea into which you put time, thought, and energy. Mm-hmm. obviously a very broad definition. Um, and by that definition, myself as a person, my home as a space, my life as a path, all pieces of art to which I should put time and thought into. Mm-hmm. Um, I think tiny living really, really um, boils that down. I mean, I'm, I'm actually sitting in my tiny house right now. And I can, <laughs> I gonna ask, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can look around me and... I see the stories of over a hundred people in 160 square feet. I mean, my mother's hands are all over this house. I have plenty of friends who donated artwork to me and it engenders the level of respect for my home Uh and respect for myself within that home. Um, It also creates a responsibility. I mean, 
I, I actually didn't get into tiny houses for environmentalism, although mm-hmm. I have the utmost respect for those who, who walked the very strict environmental path. Mm-hmm. But for me, being an environmentalist is kind of a side effect of living tiny because now my trash can is like a foot tall and I yeah. tell. <laughs> I can see how often I fill it and I can actually see how uh, less often I fill it because I live in such a tiny space and I'm so aware of everything I use and where I came from and who made it. Oh, I'm I'm sorry, you're breaking it again. Oh, bit. that's okay. I was just thinking, does it does it free you up at all creatively to not have to constantly be thinking about stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think people write all the time about creativity um, actually coming out of a sense of boredom, <laughs> or at least in uh, in creative education. You know, the fact that children are constantly uh, entertained means they never right. get bored enough to create. So living in a small space, I don't have internet. Um, I don't have TV. Um, when I first moved in, I didn't even have electricity. Uh, but that only lasted for a couple months. <laughs> but um, it forces you to slow down. And I think slowing down is one of the best things you can do to be creative. Mm-hmm. Um, so I definitely think being in this space, being forced to step out of the flow of the city life um, and really be alone with my own thoughts um, has been a lot for my creativity. Hmm. Well, the only other question I had is if you would feel comfortable sending us a photo of the space, either from the outside or from the inside, if that's something you'd feel comfortable with. Yeah, I'm happy with two. My, I mean, okay. at this point, I post photos of my tiny house like other people post <laughs> photos of their kids. So she has her own Instagram. She has oh, her she's a she? Okay. Okay. Yes. Awesome. Her name is Aubergine. Okay. <laughs> is she purple? She is purple. Yeah. And I actually did not know the word Aubergine, <laughs> despite being an artist, until my sister's girlfriend, who lives in like... Japan, told me from across the world what I had to name my tiny house. And that's as awesome. she was named. <laughs> uh, would you feel comfortable if we shared a link to the Instagram? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Cool. It's, it's very public. So it's just Aubergine Tiny House, the same on Facebook. And then oh, the website awesome. with some information about the build. I have a time-lapse video mm-hmm. of the build and a oh, little cool. video from inside the house. They're at um, mirandashearth.com. Oh, okay. Okay. That's perfect. All right. So I'll let you know um, which, if any, photos I grab, um, or if there's any that you prefer to send me, feel free to send those on. Yeah, I'm happy either way. If you need higher resolution, I can send them on. Okay. But anything that I've posted publicly, I should be... The only thing I'd uh, hesitate about is if there are people in the photos. I'd just like to double-check those. But otherwise, feel free to use anything from inside the house. Okay, cool. I will follow up on that. I'm a little bit worried because my phone reception in here is terrible, but I feel like we should give the podcast thing a go just in case. Um, Sure. And I I think we should be able to use it. I've reported in here before, but um, let's see. Could we start off um, just by you saying your name and introducing yourself um, as an artist? Sure. Um, So my name is Miranda Ashleen. And I'm a interdisciplinary artist. I work in music and writing, but primarily in oil painting, where I paint my own canvases or paint my own work and then knit my own canvases to paint on top of. 
So as an artist, have you found that money is sort of an all-consuming thought for you, or do you kind of just constantly hustle and think of ways to earn a living as an artist? What role has money sort of played in your evolution as an artist? Uh, well, it really impacted my career trajectory. Um, when I decided to study art in undergraduate, my family was very supportive. Uh, my mother studied theater and my father studied philosophy, so they really didn't have a choice but to be <laughs> supportive. Um, but I knew from the very beginning that I never wanted to have to completely support myself off of income directly from my art. And yet I wanted to make a life completely immersed within art. Um, so I did a lot of brainstorming about how you can, how both of those things could be true. Um, and that's what led me to becoming a creative entrepreneur. I run my own business called Miranda's Hearth, and we're actually working on starting a community art hotel, which will combine sustainable hospitality with community art to create a hotel where everything around you is completely handmade by local artists. I'm going to be looking that up after this interview. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. I, I saw on your website that you do something which I'd actually never seen from any other artist before, so I'm hoping you can educate me and let me know if it's common, if I've just been living in the dark. But it, it looks like you rent and rent to own the paintings that you create. So I was wondering how you came up with that idea and if you could tell us how it's working out for you. Absolutely. Um, so I haven't seen anybody else who does this specifically. I, uh, through my work building Miranda's Hearts, I was the director of operations at an art center in Concord. And I know of a lot of artists who will, you know, sell something and then accept payments, right? If somebody mm -hmm. can't pay the upfront costs, they'll say, oh, you can give it to me in three payments over this amount of time. And that's pretty much the exact same thing that I'm doing. What I shifted was just um, pushing that as the front instead of selling my artwork at full cost. Um, so this came, I actually left my job in December to start working um, on my business full time. And when I did that, I started to, I had to take a step back and, and really do the side hustle thing and try and work on coming up with multiple streams of revenue. Um, I live in a tiny house, so my expenses, my cost of living is greatly reduced, which means I can support myself off of my work with my art. Um, and the art loan program was a part of that. Um, I, I mentioned earlier that I made the decision never to make money off my art. So after about 10 years of painting, I now have 50 to 60 paintings hanging around my studio and my friends' houses and my family's houses. Um, and actually a big push in addition to looking for additional income was that I was running out of space. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I'm only in my 20s and I'm already <laughs> running out of space. Um, so I realized that my, like, idealistic, I never have to sell my artwork. Um, I'm just going to make it because I love it. You know, that can all be true, but unless I'm destroying at the same rate that I'm making, it's mm -hmm. not going to be sustainable. Um, so I was trying to figure out kind of a couple different questions and I try and think about my life in this way is that you have your three different problems and instead of, I think Tina Selig says this in one of her books, creativity comes out of viewing problems, not as problems, uh, not as obstacles, but as opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so my three problems were needing more income, needing a space to, uh, put my artwork 
and then wanting to be able to create more artwork, you know, without mm-hmm. running out of space. And so I thought, well, I can't afford my own paintings. I think most artists who re, uh, who accurately price their work can't mm-hmm. <laughs> and shouldn't be able to. Um, and my friends really like my artwork. I mean, I've had really positive feedback. Um, I have friends who bought my cheap little, you know, I make work on unstretched canvases mm-hmm. uh, and I sell them at anywhere from 20 to $50. So, so people were paying that much, but they weren't paying 800 or or $1,000, which absolutely made sense because I wouldn't be. And that's when I really started thinking like, well, if someone can only pay $20, maybe that's okay. Maybe I can take a leaf out of the books of places like Netflix and Spotify and all of these mm-hmm. places where people in my generation are getting used to their $10 a month subscription. What if they could subscribe to art and be able to support a local artist in a way that they can afford in a way that helps me out both financially and also space wise. Um, and everybody wins. So I think that was my, my creative solution to, to all of these circling um, obstacles. And so far, it's it's going really well. So who are the kind of clients who take you up on it? So far, they're mostly direct friends mm-hmm. um, or people who I've met through work. Um, I'm broadening it a little more to professional network and or, you know, your health network. Everybody has their doctor and their mm-hmm. dentist. And uh, I'm trying to think of businesses that might be interested in working with a local artist and, like, being able to use that as part of their marketing. All of the artwork on our wall comes from local artist Miranda Ashleen instead of from, you know, Marshalls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think local Airbnbs like stuff like that, little bed and breakfast. Um, so I really am just starting. I started it in December. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's been going really well. and It's been really validating for me uh, to provide a way with people for people to interact with my art that's affordable and accessible, which is a big part of the mission of my work through uh, community art and through Miranda's mm-hmm. art. Have you had any challenges along the way? Um, I mean, transport can be an issue. I have mm-hmm. a, a Nissan Versa, and some of my paintings are getting a little big. Uh, so far, they can all fit, but that's good. Um, so it's just, I mean, it's... I think the the hard parts are always the administration. It's the not fun part. Um, it's sending monthly invoices. I mean, so far, especially because they're people I know, everybody has paid promptly on time. That's what Everybody's I was wondering been about. Really, yes. <laughs> I mean, it does take me sending an, a reminder sure. every month. Um, but I definitely operate on the, on the assumption that most people don't want to screw you over. Yeah. And I am taking the risk that if I have a clause written in that if damages happen to any of the paintings, I'll take a flat rate of $100 for the damages. Mm. And that's true on a $95 painting, and it's true on a $1,200 painting. So that's part of my risk. But as a community artist, I think it's worth taking the risk of possibly harming art in order to have art in somebody's daily life. I think our fear of breaking things and our fear of harming art in any sort of way has come grown to such an extreme that now we only ever see real art behind glass. 
And I think that's a real detriment to our experience of art and to art's ability to get into the daily lives of more people. That is pretty much all I have. The only other thing I was going to ask you about is where we can find your work. But would you like me to include the Miranda's Hearth in the show notes for the podcast? Is that the URL you prefer? Yeah, so I actually have two. Miranda's Hearth is kind of the community art business, and I'd okay. be happy to connect to that. Um, then there's MirandaAshleen.com is my portfolio website. Okay. We can um, add those in there. Yeah, that'd be awesome. And the only other thing I'd add is that as another, um, people have asked me whether other people or other artists are doing this um, mm-hmm. and whether I would add other artists to my program. Um, I'm thinking about the latter. I haven't found anyone who's doing the former. But I've actually started, um, because I've gotten so many of those questions, I started working on a guidebook oh, wow. um, for how other people can start their own art loan program. Um, and I'm going to have just kind of the explanatory narrative of this is how and this is why and this is what um, what it takes to do it. Uh-huh. But then I'm also going to put together a package with the contracts that I use and the monthly invoice statement and the financial spreadsheets that I use to keep track of how much people have paid and how when they're actually going to be able to afford mm-hmm. their own painting. Um, so that's, I'm actually, I haven't announced it yet, but I'd be happy for you to share it. I'm going to be announcing it on June 1st. Okay. Uh, and then I'm hoping to have it come out um, on September 1st. And are you self-publishing or did you get a contract for it? I'm self-publishing. Okay. I wonder, would you ever be interested in any part of it running in the magazine if the editorial staff was interested? In, sorry, say that again? Would you ever be interested in any part of it running in Artist Magazine if the editorial staff would be interested in like an excerpt or anything? Yeah, Sure. Okay, I'll follow up. I'll check in with them and see um, what they're looking for. But I, I think that information is really valuable. I think people would love that. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I my work with the Community Art Hotel is about helping artists view themselves as small businesses. Yeah. Because it's only in the past, like, 150 or 200 years that we've created this narrative of the artist as the troubled outsider. Right. But before that, artists, were the people who made the things you use. I mean, mm-hmm. Michelangelo was not Andy Warhol. Yeah. So he was he was a great businessman with great technical skill, but he did the patronage. He did the and so yeah, I kind of thought of as like a like a handyman, like a like a I don't know, blacksmith or something, more than kind of I think the way he's revered now. That was strange. Yeah. yeah, no, it's totally true. I mean all of those big guys, they were just they were just paying the bills and they were doing it by sculpting things and building buildings and painting walls. But they were making a living. They weren't doing this whole enlightenment genius track (laughs) that we do now. And so I really want to help artists reconnect with that and not be ashamed about being good at money. Because there are a lot of artists who can be good at money. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's not that hard. It's just something you have to learn. Just like, you know, color theory. Yeah. Yeah, I have a feeling I'm going to be calling you back for some stuff. This is awesome. <laughs> this is really great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Bye bye. Okay. So that was our show. Thank you so much for listening. And to remember, our final episode this month will be answering your questions about how to become an entrepreneurial artist. Thanks for listening. <laughs>
Art Openings is brought to you by Artist Network and is recorded at Banana Peel Studios in Brooklyn, New York. This podcast is produced by Courtney Jordan and Samantha Sanders with audio production by Chris Weingarten. Thanks for listening and be sure to rate us on iTunes. Thank you.